Well, and now I'd like to introduce our speaker and pastor, Daniel Meyer. Thank you, Heather. Good job. Well, good morning. Well, we have begun, we're a few weeks into it, a, a series in the book of Acts. And uh, just to remind you, the book of Acts really is the Gospel of Luke, part two. The Gospel of Luke talked about what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And Luke wrote a second volume, if you will. Uh, and the, the book of Acts is simply talking about the, the acts of the apostles, what the, uh, the apostles and the early church did. And if you remember, last week Michael spoke, and the passage that he covered in, in the book of Acts chapter 2, the passage that he talked about, talked about the, the birth of the church, the beginning of the church. Up until that time, really, even though it was in the New Testament, but the Gospels and the, the first chapter or two of the book of Acts, the, we're talking about what took place still under the Old Covenant. But there was a line drawn in the second chapter of Acts where we move into a, a, a new covenant, a new way in which God is relating to his people, to the church. And you remember last week, Michael talked about how the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church as the, the apostles and, and the disciples, about 120 in total, waited there and uh, as Jesus instructed them, waited in the upper room for the Holy Spirit to be given, the promise to be given. On that day, in that moment, all of a sudden, things changed forever. And it affects us, and we need to understand it. If we're going to understand the book of Acts, more importantly, if we're going to understand our role as followers of Christ, who we are as the church, because the church isn't a building. The church is the people. We are the church. We need to understand not just what happened, the events of Acts chapter 2, but the significance of Acts chapter 2. Probably the, the clearest passage that we have in the scripture that talks about the, the change between the old covenant, that is the, the old contract, the old way in which God related to the people of Israel, and how God is relating to us as in, under the new covenant as the church, the best passage, the clearest passage that talks about the specific changes and privileges is in Jeremiah chapter 31. So let me go ahead and read Jeremiah chapter 31. We'll read a few verses just to set the scene for what we're talking about today in the book of Acts. In Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet Jeremiah was speaking on behalf of God. God was speaking through this prophet. And this is what God said through Jeremiah. He said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will not, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was husband to them, declares the Lord. In other words, it's not going to be like the old covenant that was initiated and given to Moses the law that was given to Moses, not just the Big Ten, but 500 and, and more 
laws that, that instructed and told Israel, here's the expectations of God. Here's the law of God. He says, it's not going to be like the, the old covenant, laws that are given and chiseled into a, a tablet of stone. But he goes on to say, under this new covenant that we all live under, this new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. So unlike the old covenant that's chiseled into that, that tablet of stone that stands before the people of God under the new covenant, he is going to write his laws on the fleshly tablets of our heart and our mind. That he's going to put his truth, his words, his, his precepts, his expectations, his desires within us. And this is what happened when the Holy Spirit was poured out. The Holy Spirit is God indwelling us so that we would know what it is that God is doing. What it is that God is saying to us. Jesus said he did nothing on his own initiative. He only did what the Father told him to do. The Holy Spirit indwells us so we can know what it is that God is doing. And not just in some general sense, but that God can speak to us, can lead us, can nudge us and walk us along in the paths that he has specifically designed for us as individuals, as families, as a church family. The Holy Spirit was given in the second chapter of Acts so we could know and hear and be directed by our God. Then he goes on to say, this is good news, he goes on to say in verse 34, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Another difference between the old covenant, the, the way in which God related uh, to, the, to Israel, and the privilege that we have under this new covenant is under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit was given to different individuals for a time for a particular job or a chore. The Holy Spirit would come on a king during his reign, but it could also be removed. The Holy Spirit would come and fill and come upon a prophet so that they could prophesize what God was saying. The Holy Spirit was given to those who were building the temple. So those craftsmen were able to do it according to God's design and with his power and with his wisdom. And when they were done with the task, the Holy Spirit was taken back. And that's why it says the difference is, under this new covenant, they will not say to their neighbor, oh, you ought to know the Lord like, like I do. You know, the, the, the craftsmen won't go home and say, oh, honey, you wouldn't believe it. The, the Spirit of God is with us as we build it. You ought to know, the, know God like, like I get to know God because I'm, I'm filled with the Spirit. No one is going to have to say to another person, another one of God's people, you should know God like, like we get to know God in this, this moment of time. 
because they will all know me. They will all have that relationship with me. They will all be having my word written in them. Everyone, all of God's people, from the very least to the greatest, from the, from the smallest child who's following Jesus to the, the oldest individual, all will know me. It doesn't matter what their background is. It doesn't matter what they've done in the past. It doesn't matter who they are. They will all know me under this new covenant. In the church, what we see is this divine privilege that we have Every one of us are given the Holy Spirit. Every one of us have God not only with us, but within us. So we know what the Father is saying and doing, and that we can follow His lead. In Ephesians chapter 4, it also says of, of this ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we, under this new covenant, are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. In other words, in the old covenant, the Holy Spirit would be given and taken away, but in this new covenant, we all are given the Holy Spirit from the least to the greatest, and it is sealed within us, not to be taken away, not to be lifted off us, not, not to be withdrawn for any reason. The Holy Spirit is indwelling us was poured out on the day of Pentecost and stays and is sealed within us until the day of redemption, the day that Christ returns a second time and we, we join him in heaven. And the reason why the Holy Spirit won't indwell us in heaven is there'll be no need. Because we all, at that moment, will be face to face with God. We will see Him, we will know Him, we will hear Him, we will be before Him. And in this time, while we're on this broken planet, where we're in this, this realm awaiting the full redemption of, and, and, and fulfillment of God's purposes for, for this earth and for us, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So there's a very different way in which God related to his people under the old covenant than how he relates to us under the new covenant. And the Holy Spirit has given us for a purpose so that we can accomplish his purposes, God's purposes, not only know what he's doing, but we would have the power, the power of the Holy Spirit given us so we can do his purposes. Last week, Michael said that we need, in order to do a heavenly work, we need heavenly power. So the Spirit of God is given to all of his followers it remains in us, it's sealed within us all the time so that we have all of his power to use us, to transform us, to empower us to do his will. And, and certainly, as, as we read and as we read last week in the, in the first and second chapter of, of Acts, we see this enormous Transformation, for instance, in the, in the life of Peter. 
as a result of that indwelling presence and power of God. Under the old covenant, uh, before Peter received the Holy Spirit within him on the day of Pentecost, Peter was a, uh, uh, he wasn't a timid man, but he was a fearful man. After Jesus was arrested and was, was being tried and was going to be crucified, people went up to Peter and said, Peter, I, I, I saw you with Jesus. You're one of his followers. And Peter said, no, I, I didn't know him. You, you, you got me mixed up with somebody else. I, I never knew that man, not me. I, I didn't follow him because he was afraid that he'd be arrested too. He was fearful. But we have read, Michael read some of the passages last week, under this new covenant when the Holy Spirit was within him, all of a sudden the power of the Holy Spirit enabled Peter to be who God intended him to be, gave him the power to do what he desired without being strangled by his own, his own flesh. So we read in, in, again in last week, Peter, this, this fearful man at one point, stepping before a large crowd after he is filled with the Holy Spirit, looking that, that crowd of thousands, literally of thousands in the eye, talking about Jesus, not being afraid to be identified with him, but saying, the Jesus who you crucified, he is our Lord and Savior. I mean, talk about boldness. Not because Peter all of a sudden mustered up some strength on his own. But that's the evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He turned to that crowd and said, you need to repent, to turn around, to acknowledge your sins and be baptized so you can be saved, so you can be drawn in to God's purposes. We see this tremendous boldness on Peter. And I'm sure as Peter was speaking, he was aware there was something changing inside of me. There's something happening. And there was. And it was the work of the Holy Spirit. And every single one of us who has made that decision to follow Jesus are indwelt permanently by the Holy Spirit to transform us so that we can, we can align our wills with God's will and have that strength, not from ourselves, not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but as we align our will with God's will, then the Spirit of God gives us the strength, the wisdom, the power to do those things that he has commanded us to do, that he's designed for us to do. And we need to learn how to, to walk in that present reality of the Spirit within us. We need to learn how to be sensitive to those nudges, to that, that voice of God as it's being written on our hearts and written on our minds and learning how to recognize that, that, that nudging, that empowering of the Spirit. There are times where, where I'm meeting with individuals and, and we're talking about the, you know, some situation, some problem in their, in their life and they're wanting some wise counsel and they're sharing their story and I'm thinking, like inside the voice is saying, I don't know what to do. I mean, it's, it's just beyond me. I can't figure, I mean, what, what in the world can I possibly say? 
and, and there are times where I am just stupid. And there are other times where I just sense the Spirit of God. And I hear myself saying things, and I think, ooh, that's good. You know, <laughs> there, there have been times maybe with some of you where I say, wait a second. And I, I write down what I just said because I know that didn't come from me. I recognize that was God giving me wisdom in this moment that I didn't have. That was the Holy Spirit riding on my heart, riding on my mind. What he has for that moment. This, this is the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit within all of us, all the time, so that we can, again, align our hearts and our minds, our wills, with God's purposes, and then be, and then be empowered to walk out those plans and those purposes that are uniquely given to us. See, the implication of what Jeremiah said, the implication of Pentecost and the fact that we all have the Holy Spirit is that God has a lifetime of purposes for every single one of us. God has purposes for this afternoon, what he wants to do. It may be in how you relate to family or to friends. It may be just he has purposes in, in allowing you to, to have wisdom and insight into what he's freeing you from in your lives. Wisdom and, and the power to rise above fears or anxiety about this next week. God has a purpose for your life. He has things he wants to sow into you and through you and the giving of the Spirit to every one of his people, not just to a few, not just temporarily, so that we all can walk as the people of God. In the Old Covenant, they had priests. They had a priesthood who had the right to come into the very presence of God. Under the New Covenant, we all are priests. It's a kingdom of priests because Every one of us have that right and that privilege and therefore bear that responsibility to come into the very presence of God and say, what do you have for me today? So we have the Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit's been given to the church in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So the apostles and the church for generations to come, can endeavor, can step out and do the activity of God with the power and the presence of God within them. So Acts chapter 2, let's pick it up in, in verse 41. Peter is just finishing his, his sermon, this, the first sermon of the church. And it says in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 41, that those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 responded. There were 120 followers of Jesus waiting in the upper room. That was the total of the, the church, apparently, at least close to that. 3,000 were added to their number that day. 
they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They devoted themselves to those, those activities. Those were the, the, the initial activities of the church. They devoted themselves. They didn't just sort of haphazardly begin to do that a little bit, but they arranged their priorities so that those things that were necessary in order to walk with God and do the works of Christ would be able to be formed and, and come through their lives. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many words and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So last week we, we see how God gave his power to accomplish his purposes. And today what we're looking at is some of those purposes, some of those things that that early church did in order to maintain, in order to grow, in order to mature as followers of Christ. Now we, we know even from the last series we did on uh, launching out of Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, we know in general the purposes and the purpose of, of God's people is, is to be disciples and to make disciples. We, we define a disciple, one who follows Christ, not as someone who, who is a member of a church or attends a, some meeting. A disciple is someone who is chosen who's dedicated themselves to imitate Christ, to reflect Christ, to do the works of Christ. The church is called the body of Christ. Christ has returned to his Father in heaven, and now we get to bring those heavenly purposes of our Father from heaven to earth, even as Jesus did. We get to be disciples, to reflect and imitate Christ. We as disciples get to do what our master did and is doing. And can you imagine? Here, like I said, they had approximately 120 people in that upper room waiting as Jesus instructed them. They were waiting. Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem until you received what I promised. You wait, because I, I've promised that I will send the Spirit. And there in the upper room, Pentecost comes. Michael taught about it last week. They were filled and empowered and received and were sealed with the Holy Spirit. 
Peter goes and begins to address the crowd that, that sees and hears what's going on and, and gathers around them. And 3,000 were saved in that sermon. That, that's not a bad sermon. He did pretty good for himself. But can you imagine going from 120 to 3,000? The apostles who were called to, to lead and give guidance to the church all of a sudden had not 120. Oh, we can manage. Yeah, it's just it's a, you know, one or 10 people per, per apostle. All of a sudden, you have 3,000. 3,000. And that wasn't 3,000 disciples. That was 3,000 people who made a decision to repent, to receive the gift of forgiveness. And now there they were saying, okay, now what, Peter? We, we heard you. We repented. We received the gift. We're choosing to follow Jesus. Now what do we do? And Peter and the, the apostles needed to provide a context where those 3,000 and them for themselves could grow continually and daily as disciples, as imitators, as reflectors of Christ. Because you don't become a disciple by making a decision. You become a disciple as, as a process. It doesn't happen instantly. One has to be deliberate. If we are going to be who Christ has called us to be as individuals, if we're going to be who Christ has called us to be as a church, here in the 21st century in Ohio, it means that there have to be deliberate decisions. We need to be a people who are devoting ourselves to the pursuit of Christ, devoting ourselves to that process of continually growing and becoming disciples to a greater manner, becoming those who imitate and reflect Christ. It'll affect our priorities. Well, that's a bummer. I thought I'd just come to church. One or two or th sometimes three or four Sundays a month. I have to, I have to change my priorities? Well, if we want to be disciples, imitators of Christ, people who are being transformed, yes. If we want to just be church members, no problem. But we're called to something far greater than being church members. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit so we can be the hands of Jesus, the voice of Jesus, the ears of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, to walk where and in a manner that Jesus would walk. See, discipleship takes place in a context of health and wholeness. The church is to be a, a context where we grow and where we're transformed. One of the words in the scriptures for the, or the ways that uh, it, the church was described, the household of God was described, uses the word therapeos, 
The church is the household of God. The the Greek word therapeos is what we get our word therapy from. It doesn't mean the church is to be a place where we all lay down on a couch and get psychoanalyzed. What it's saying is that the church is to be a place of growth and of healing and transformation. This process of becoming like Christ. And it doesn't just happen. We need to be deliberate. We need to deliberately, purposefully put ourselves in a context where that change can happen. Just like a a child, those of us who who have children, a, a child doesn't just automatically become mature. It doesn't just happen because of the passage of time. We've all have met and maybe at times have been an individual who has many years behind him but is anything but acting mature. It doesn't just happen. It's creating a context where growth and maturity can happen. That's what's important. And maturing into being disciples also needs to be something that we deliberately choose to place ourselves in a context conducive for that change. A context where the Holy Spirit who now indwells us and is sealed within us can get hold of us, can be nurtured, where we can learn to distinguish and discern the voice of God within. So what's the context that results in this kind of healthy, fruitful activity as God's people, well, that's what Paul was talking about, or I'm sorry, that's what Luke was describing in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where he says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's what the Holy Spirit, or that's the context that began in that early church, allowed them to see this transformation and to grow in their ability to take advantage of the Holy Spirit, to take advantage of this this presence of God with us and in us. And I want you to understand these these four different activities, if you will, that he gives, it's not, it's descriptive of what that early church did. It's not, prescriptive. It's not an exhaustive list. Luke was just saying these are some of the things that they were initially doing. It's not everything they did or all that a church needs to do. It was just sort of a description. If someone grabbed me in the lobby today and said, Danny, can you describe what what it is that has allowed you and Penny to to make it for 42 years of of marriage and, and still like each other I would uh, you know I would say well you know we we have honest conversation with each other we have fun with each other that's important we we we're very committed to days off and and having downtime I'm committed to make sure there's ice cream in the freezer and that she gets M&M's Now, I'm describing some of those things. That's not all that makes for a good marriage, but it's it's descriptive. It's not a prescription. You do those things, and your wife and your husband are going to have... No, it's it's a 
I'm just, it's a description, and that's what Luke is doing here. He's describing not an exhaustive list, but some of those basic contexts that the church and the, the people of God gave them to that helped them begin to grow and mature. You know, it, it, it doesn't talk about worship, though we know worship was a key part of the early church. It doesn't talk at all. He didn't mention outreach, although we know that that was an essential and a, important and a, a, a central part of what the early church did. He was just describing some of that context that helps us to grow and be formed. And those things that, that the apostles knew that the 3,000 needed to deliberately, deliberately give themselves to in order for them to grow as followers of Christ. He said, first, they were deliberate, that they were consistent. That What was the word that he, he used? That they devoted themselves change their priorities so that they can grow in their understanding of the apostles' teaching. The core teachings of Jesus, the, what the apostles taught, because they were witnesses of Christ. They listened to Jesus. So part of what is essential, they saw to help the 3,000 and, and those who were being added daily to their number, to grow as disciples was they have to understand truth. They have to understand what is true and what is out of bounds. See, the Christian faith isn't just a matter of, of staying out of trouble. The Christian faith isn't just simply a matter of saying, okay, just tell me what's right and what's wrong and I'll do it. The Christian faith is coming to know him and what, what God says and what his thoughts are, what his passion is, what his truth is. That if we are going to be disciples, it's not enough that we just gather together and, and sort of love on each other and, and, and enjoy each other, have lasagna with each other. If, if we're going to be disciples, if this church is going to be a reflection of Christ in our communities, then we need to have a foundation within us so we know what Jesus is saying and what Jesus said and is doing so that we have a grid so that as God writes on our hearts, we've under, we understand a foundation of how he wants to work through his people. We're all called to, to be on a journey together, growing in Christ individually and corporately. And that journey, that road that we're on, it's like it, there's a, a, a mountain on one side we can run right into. There's cliff on the other side. So we need to know, what is it God is calling, where is it that God's calling us to walk? What are some of the parameters? The apostles', te apostles teaching is like that, that anchor in, uh, for a boat in the middle of the ocean that allows that boat not just to be pulled this way and that way, but allows it to, to hold still and not be tossed around. 
And here at VCDC, that's one of the reasons, this is one of the reasons why we've chosen to more often than not have our series just simply going through a book of the Bible rather than just picking current topics that might have, have interest or topical teachings that, that just sort of are, are just a small slice, but we are committed by and large to go through books of the Bible so that over a period of time, we are going to glean what it is that the Bible teaches, what Jesus taught, what the Scriptures say, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There, there is truth to be known, regardless of the fact that we live in a culture that, that says truth, it's, your truth might be different than my truth. No, Jesus says there is a truth. He's the truth, and he spoke and he revealed that truth. And it behooves us, as ones who want to imitate him, that we would learn what that is. That's one of the reasons why frequently Jesus, when he was talking to others, he'd say, now you've heard it said in our culture, but I say to you. And he'd give them that reality of what it is that comes from the heart of God. That's why Jesus frequently would say, it is written, and then he'd quote the, the Old Testament, because truth is absolute. And truth can be and needs to be known by his followers. The second activity that Luke lists is fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia. It speaks of lives being woven together, of interdependence, not independence, nor dependence, but interdependence where we can learn and grow and lean on one another and see the, the body come together. Because in the, the wisdom of, of God, none of us were wired, none of us are made the same way. We have different gifts and different abilities and different temperaments and different ways of looking at life. And he says, I did that on purpose so that you have to learn how to be interdependent, so you can be woven together, so that as you come together, and that's what fellowship is talking about, having a common life together, I can be reflected. See, fellowship, in the way that the scriptures are referring to it, is not just having your circle of friends and getting together. Oh, yeah, I had some fellowship this week. I met with, with a couple of friends at, at uh, you know, Starbucks. I mean, that, that's fine. That's good. But fellowship isn't just getting together with your circle of friends. Fellowship is being thrown together in the body of Christ where it's not just people that you like. See, we can choose our friends, but when you come into a church all of a sudden, you're thrown together with people who are very different than you. Have you ever noticed that? You know, we go to church and we think, that, I like this guy, but that, that guy, 
just weird. He just rubs me the wrong way. I don't like how they talk or how they act or how they behave. They're far too introverted. They're far too extroverted. They're far too this. They're far too that. And the Lord says, that's right. Because generally we pick friends who don't rub us at all, who don't stretch us at all. But in the church, we're constantly stretched. We're constantly facing and, and coming together with people who are very different. And if you haven't noticed, that's where God does his best work. When we're stretched and pulled. Where we learn that, that those things that we don't particularly care a lot about, but God does, can be seen and revealed through, through another. Fellowship talks and refers to and is implying that there is a, a willingness to serve and to be served. That what we have, what God has, has created in us is necessary for others to see and to experience. And what he has created and formed in others is necessary for us. That's why it would drive Jesus crazy and Paul and Peter and the apostles crazy if they heard individuals say as is so often the case you know I, I don't I don't really go to church very often I just don't get anything out of it you know I, I, I I'm doing fine me and God and my my good friends but it was we've been created to be part of the church and and I, I think Jesus if he heard someone say or if Peter or Paul heard someone say, I, I just don't get anything out of it, he'd say, is that all church is? A place to go and get something out of it? What are you investing into it? Do we come to church saying, Lord, who might you use me to touch today, to bless today, to pray for today, to, to just see and smile at today? Lord, won't you allow me to impact, to serve another person? Whether it's on a Sunday morning or Monday night at the food pantry or the medical clinic. See, church isn't just a place where we go to get something. It's a place where we go to invest something. That's what it's talking about when it refers to fellowship. Fellowship engages the whole life. It demands a complete investment. Sometimes a change, not sometimes, that's not true. It all the time will involve a change in priorities in our lives. Where we can say, Lord, all that I am, all that I have, all my resources, time, energy, things, I want you to know it comes from you, it belongs to you, and I'll invest all that I am, all that I have, according to those whispers of the Holy, from the Holy Spirit within. Anything less than that isn't Christianity, it's just churchianity. Because being a disciple means that we surrender, we, we, are, we are His. They gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. They gave themselves to fellowship. They gave themselves, it says, to the breaking of bread. 
Now, what is that referring to? Well, some commentators say, well, that's referring to just how they ate together. And the scriptures talked a little bit about that. And other commentators say, oh, no, the breaking of bread is referring to communion. That They came together and they had communion time where they celebrated the death and the burial and the resurrection. And they took the cup and they took the bread. And I think it's clear in scripture it means both. The early church got together and ate together, but when they got together, we know from historical writings, when the church came together in their homes, they continually reminded one another of what Christ had done. And they shared the wine and the bread as they took communion together. What, what happened and what we're seeing in this, this little phrase that they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread is that not only did they live their lives with their feet firmly here on this earth, but they were continually reminded about what had taken place and what is taking place in the heavenlies. The breaking of the bread, eating for sustenance, and being reminded of that spiritual truth. It's speaking of the mingling that we engage in of heaven and hell, heaven and earth. Sometimes it's hell. The mingling of what is spiritually going on and what is going on down here. The normal Christian life, the life of a disciple, is forever walking in that tension between heaven and earth. Recognizing the needs and the, the, the realities of this earthly existence, but also with one foot in the presence and the power and the purposes of God in heaven. What we do when we gather together, we, we talk, we have fun, we drink coffee here, and we break bread, we take communion, reminding ourselves it's not just about what goes on in this earth, but there's a heavenly kingdom that is slicing in. And we as his disciples are, are taking the purposes of the king and seeing his will be done here on earth as it's being done in heaven through us. And finally, it says he, they devoted themselves to prayer, to that conversation, not a monologue, but a dialogue with God. Just uh, yeah, I could preach a series on, on prayer, but let me just simply say this. The prayer in that early church, the prayer of God's people, of his disciples, both in individual prayer and corporate prayer, speaks to the fact that we are a people who are, who are utterly dependent on God's direction, on God's voice, on God's presence. And we're utterly surrendered to do as he says. So therefore, as his people, we, we never come into his presence and leave empty-handed. As we, as we get up in the morning, God is with us. What do you have for me today? What are you doing, Father? What are those purposes and plans before us? As we, as we come to a church service on Sunday morning, we come saying, Lord, what is it that you might be doing in me today? What is it that you might want to do through me today? What are you saying? And then we pause and we listen and we get nudged. We get directed by the Holy Spirit. 
to be his people. Being served at times, serving at times, but we are his people and we pray, we have dialogue with our Heavenly Father so we can do the works of Jesus as the body of Christ. Amen? Let's stand up. You know, as I was thinking about this, this message, I don't know about you, but I just got overwhelmed <laughs> because I, I, I understand, I hope you understand that my gosh, what God's calling us to is just so vast, so big, and does demand all of us. But sometimes my life, I don't know if you relate, but our, our lives can be so overwhelming. There's just so many issues and so many things that we're dealing with and complications and details and, and, and there's work and there's our family and there's, there's sickness, there's whatever, and, and it's just sometimes such a jumbled mess. And when we think about living this life surrendered to God, utterly dependent on God, where do I start? And as I was thinking about this, praying about this, I had this picture of this, and I, I, maybe you guys have this too, there's a shelf in my home where there's this jumble of, of electrical cords, you know, for different, you know, things, you know, and, uh, and I, they just get thrown on the shelf. And then all of a sudden when I need one of them, it's just all tangled, and I pick this, this ball of wire, and I think, okay, where is that wire for this computer? And, and, and sometimes it just seems overwhelming. I just throw it back on the shelf, and I'll go buy a new one. But it, as I was picturing this, I saw Jesus just, just sort of unwrapping, taking out this one cord, you know, just one cord that we needed for that moment. And I felt like God was saying to us, you may feel, I don't know where to start. There's just so many details, so much going on in my life. I don't even know where to start. And the Lord just wants to say that he is going to help you to not try to get the whole thing entangled and figure it out. But the Lord will give you wisdom, direction by his spirit, how to just start somewhere. Well, here's something that I'll, I'll take out for you. You start with this. Does that make sense? And not just to say, uh, it's just too much. I, you know, nice thoughts. I just can't handle it. I've got too much going on. But we say, Jesus, where do you want to start in my life? So here's how I want to end. We're going to take a few minutes here to finish up with worship. And those of you who just feel like, I don't know where to start. I don't know how to unravel all that's going on in my life so that I can move into further discipleship, I want to invite you to come forward because I believe God is going to begin to show you how and even specifically what he wants you to begin with, what he's going to begin with through you. What is it that he's beginning to work on so that we can take that next step in this journey of discipleship with him? Does that make sense? So if you're here today, you need that wisdom, come forward. If you're here today and you have a physical, emotional, spiritual problem, you need the touch of God, come on forward. We're going to take a few minutes just to pray for one another and to allow God to speak to us and show us what, he, what the next step for us is. Why don't you come on forward? Let's worship. Let's make sure that everybody that comes to the front to get unraveled or to get prayer has someone praying for them.
We're going to need men and women to pray, so come on up. Make sure everyone has someone praying for them. Spirit, come right now. We just offer ourselves to you as individuals, as a church family. Come with your presence and your power for healing. Come with your wisdom and direction, Lord. Those who are in the front, those who remain standing, Lord, show us that next step in our journey with you. Come, Holy, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord. Father, we bless what you're doing here, but we ask for more. We need more of your spirit, more of your wisdom. We need to have ears to hear what you're writing on our hearts and our minds. Lord, we want more of you, and Lord, we want you to have more of us. So, Father, we just, why don't you just, those of you who are here, just hold your hands out before the Lord if you're comfortable with that. Father, we just offer ourselves to you individually. We offer our, our families, our apartments, our roommates, ourselves. We offer you this church. We are your people. Come and have your way with us. Lord, we want to devote ourselves to those things that will help us to grow. We don't know where to start sometimes, but walk us, Lord, into your purposes. Walk us into your plans. Pour out your spirit. In Jesus' name, to his glory, and all of God's church said, amen.